We're going to start, we told you for a few weeks that um, we were going to have a Q&A at the beginning of this series, and I'm going to ask J.C. Harrison to come up with me if you would, give you that. And J.C., if you don't know if you're here for maybe the first time today or you haven't caught all the series, we've been working on this series together for uh, a while, so praise God. Even though you probably want to, there you go, that's probably better for live streamers. And so... um, questions, and we're going to open up to the floor, like to you guys, if you have questions you would like answered about the book of Job, and maybe specifically about the last um, three weeks, but anything goes, but about the friends dialogue we just had. So while you're thinking about questions you might have, I want to mention a couple that we have, and this first one honestly is from me, because as we were talking about this week, one of the things that I've been struggling with is I feel like we've been so corrective to Job's friends that I wonder what's left to do right? We talked about how they sat silently for seven days and seven nights, and then they make a big mess kind of in Job's life. And then I feel like myself, like, oh my gosh, what can we even do? And my question was this, if saying nothing but being present is one of the lessons that we learn from Job's friends, does that mean we should always be afraid to say anything at all? That's my question. You want to answer it? Sure. Go ahead. I can try to. Sure. Uh, Bill did send me that question earlier, so I did have some time to think about it. I think that's a a temptation for sure. We're always afraid that we're going to do something wrong, so that fear paralyzes us a lot of times, whether it's ministering ministering to a friend in need or whether it's just simply talking to somebody about Christ and the Bible. Like, there's so much in that Bible I don't understand. I'm afraid to say anything. I might get it all wrong. That's, that's a temptation that I, I think we need to be aware of. But I think if humility precedes us and understanding that we probably will get it wrong and we just ask forgiveness and we, we reflect on what we've said when we go minister to friends, I think that's the best way. We, but we can't sit by and do nothing, although that is a temptation. Yeah, I love the, uh, and we didn't script this, but I love that idea of being paralyzed by fear. Like you're so afraid to make a mistake, you don't want to do anything. And that, but there is some, I was thinking about two things. One is, um, man, one of the verses that pops out for me in this series is, what ails you that you keep on arguing? <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's a deep self-reflective question. <laughs> if I have to keep going to my friends and hitting this thing, what's bothering me so much that I can't trust God with this situation? Um, and then there was one other one that's not coming to mind right now. Um, Oh, oh yeah, last week, uh, by whose spirit have you spoken? And I think we can kind of do one or two, well, listen, you can, but there are some errors on every side here. You can say, everything I say is the spirit of God speaking, therefore it has full authority. Or you can be like, well, God's spirit never speaks through me. Um, but I think Job's asking a re- relevant question to his friends. Did you even think about the spirit with which you came? And that could be a spirit of attitude, of predisposition, a posture of humility, but can also mean, is God calling me to say this? Or do I want to say this? And that's an act of faith either way. Because not many of us are comfortable having God speak through us to a friend. And the flip side is some of us are far too comfortable thinking we speak for God. And uh, that's what part of his friend's yeah. problem was. And, and along that lines, um, like the, 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 our, our, our spouse, our wife, our husband, we grow old, but we, we tend to see them the same as we did when we, when we married them. It's just kind of the way it is. And... I think with friends, it's the same thing. When you see a friend who you've seen serving God and loving others, and then they go through something difficult, you sometimes look past the suffering that they're in and go right to the person that was there before the suffering. And I think that's a mistake that sometimes we make. 
we don't really concentrate. This person needs just comfort as opposed to talking to the person who, who it was before they started suffering. Wow. Go ahead. One thing a person told me once and I've never forgotten it was my cousin. He said, and I was depressed, he said, Becky, God loves you so well. Mm -hmm. I think he's always been And that was helpful. Absolutely. To know that you're loved by God and loved by someone else. Yes. Yeah. Praise God. Yeah. Yeah, Mike D. Uh, I'm pretty loud, Casey. Hit it. <clears throat> They I don't know. I don't, I don't <laughs> exactly. remember. You're right on top of it there. Uh, first of all, Jesus teaches when you fast. He doesn't say if you fast. I don't think that's telling. So Jesus expects out of his disciples some fasting behavior. The question is what's our motivation and our intention in fasting? And I've wrestled with that. But I don't know that we have any indication his friends are fasting or not. It says they, he, they sat with him for seven days and seven nights. You could assume Job's not eating because you know, all his bones are sticking out and all this stuff. Maybe they're not eating with him. Maybe they're snacking. I don't know. We don't know. Yeah, but that's a great point. Because it, it, that's a spiritual discipline as well. Um, and a form of shared suffering if a friend can't eat. Do you? Like I remember one time a friend of mine couldn't eat, and so I didn't eat because I, in, in front of them anyway. Because I didn't want to be disrespectful because they couldn't eat. Right? So that's a shared suffering. Any other questions about Job? The friends? I'm going to ask, uh, while you're you going to have a minute yet, I'm going to ask Ryan Kramer. He's like, woo, saucers. Come on up here a second, do you mind? I love this because uh, Ryan was sharing some of his experiences. And uh, I'm going to put you right on the spot, brother. But you were, you were saying some, some things have been moving in you and some things that you've been doing. That, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's probably been a couple of years now. Uh, so if somebody, if somebody I know, or even if I don't know them, somebody that serves me, um, I like to reach out, uh, like the next day, um, and just, you know, I usually make a phone call and just let them know, you know, what that meant to me. Um, and uh, like an example of this, um, that I was sharing with Bill, uh, last, what was it, last Sunday, um, Steph and I went out to eat. Uh, at Applebee's, and uh, some people were sitting behind us being kind of disrespectful uh, to the server. <clears throat> and um, she was, she never broke stride. She just had a smile on her face, doing her job. And, uh, and anyway, they, they left a huge mess for her and, uh, and just walked out. And we noticed that they didn't leave a tip for her, so we, we gave her a tip and just, you know, talked with her for a minute. Talked to the manager for a few minutes. He was a great guy. Uh, and uh, anyway, the next day I called Applebee's and just wanted to speak to a manager. <clears throat> and uh, the management, they, they get on the phone and you could tell the, his voice is just like, oh boy, you know, 
another complaint. Another call from the customer, right? Yes. Yeah. And uh, that's exactly what he expected. So, but I just kind of explained to him the situation from the night before, yeah. and uh, and told him we appreciated how, like how well the service did, um, and just how how well their restaurants being ran. And uh, he was he was kind of dumbfounded. He didn't he sat there in silence for a couple of minutes, <laughs> and then he finally. He's like, wow, we never get these phone calls. And so every time I've done this, which hasn't been a lot of times, but several, I mean, if somebody gives me really good service, I think it's over the top, I'll call. And that's always the, the response I've gotten is we've never gotten a call like this. So I've, I've kind of been challenging people to do that the last couple of years, really. Um, you know, if you get really good service, to let people know, um, make that phone call and just share it with them. So. Yeah, and I, I, the reason I brought you up here, and we didn't discuss it, but I, I hope you're gra gracious enough to forgive me for that. But the reason I brought him up here is because that part of the story you say, they were so shocked because they have not had, they're so used to the other, they expect yeah. it all to be negative, and what an awesome opportunity to be graceful. But you also say honest, because you don't do it just for anybody. It's right, when you right. really see something, you're like, wow, that was amazing to make that effort then to call and, and tell someone above them you appreciated yeah. how well their service was yeah. um, to kind of call them out for uh, you know recognition and it's, or it's fun too because I mean the responses I've gotten have been really good so yeah. it's just kind of fun to hear somebody you know their voice just change like because it's always they I mean any place that runs a service you know they, it seems like anybody that calls is always complaining you know yeah they don't usually get a call, a call the next day saying thank you. And, yeah. You know, you did a good job. After a shift like that, you'd be like, yeah. ugh, what am I doing this job for? <laughs> next day, someone's like, hey, they called and they really appreciated the way you handled that. Right. Someone that wasn't even involved, they just witnessed your behavior when you thought no one's going to be watching, could have right. been snarky, mm -hmm. ugly back or whatever. Yeah. yeah. That's super, yep. super cool. I appreciate right. you sharing that. Thanks, Dan. By the way, that was perfectly timed, his trip to Applebee's last Sunday. <laughs> any, uh, any other questions or thoughts? Awesome. Thanks, JC. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Mike and others, Becky, who shared. We appreciate it. Um, this isn't to say, well, that's all the questions, and I should have said this ahead of time, but uh, we don't claim to have the answers. <laughs> like, that's the funny about the Q&A. We're just learning together. So we're not like, and here's the final decision on this, right? Just what we've experienced in our own lives and through the Word of God. Um, one more thing I want to share with you, and I appreciate it so much, but last Sunday after service, Claude grabbed me, and he goes, hey, they sat with him for seven days and seven nights, and that's not nothing. I think he felt like I was being a little hard on the friends. <laughs> and he's absolutely right. He said seven minutes would be a miracle for most of us. It's <laughs> just absolutely, absolutely true. So I appreciated that too, Claude, and that feedback. Um, have, have you ever, um, this is going to be a weird reference, but have you ever heard that song, uh, Margaritaville? Yeah, and most of us know that song, Margaritaville. Like, this is the season of Margaritaville song. You know, you get the kind of beachy music going, even from the middle of Illinois, and there's not a beach in sight. No offense to Carlisle. I'm just saying, like, there's no real beach around here. We were hanging out in Florida one year, and we were just chilling and, and, uh, near the beach and listening to Jimmy Buffett and all that, and then it just hit me. I was like, this is a song of progressive realization of responsibility. What is the word I'm looking for there? Progressive. He learns through that song. I want you to think about this. If you listen to that song, and you don't have to be drinking a margarita when you do. You can be. You don't have to be. I'm just saying, while you're listening to the song, listen to the words. He begins to realize that he has something to do with his state of life. 
and the things he's experienced. The reason I bring that up this morning is because there's a progressive realization that we're going to see this morning in the book of Job, which really surprised me as I discovered it in the word. I've told you many times before this Sunday that this was the darkest part of Job. If you're reading Job cover to cover, man, you get right here, and I was just out of gas every time. I'm like, oh, Job. Listen to it straight through. It's about three hours, or about, no, what, hour and a half to two hours. Listen to it all. But you get here, and you're just like, oof. Job, he's, it's so, it feels so dark. And yet, even in the darkest times, God is at work in our lives. And he is especially at work in the life of Job. And so, um, just have that in your mind as we look this goes through what Job is going to talk about in his final words today. And uh, we'll see what God has to sh- teach us through it. Pray with me, if you would. We're going to do what we always do. Pray before we enter into God's word. Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity we've had today already to worship you in song and fellowship and baptism and, and now through the time in your word. I pray, Father God, that you would be our teacher, that we would learn from you and that we would not need any man to teach us because your Holy Spirit is teaching us in our hearts, that we would learn from you at your feet as our maker, our creator, and indeed our redeemer. Today, in this time we have left, I pray that you would divulge wisdom to us, not just that we can know it, but that we can believe it and our lives might be changed because we've encountered you, the, the living God, the true God. And so, Father, only you can do that work. We ask you make yourself known to us in your grace and teach us through your word. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right, so, so uh, if you've not, not been with the series, you know that we're starting the, the third third, the last third of the series, we've kind of walked through it. We broke up into three thirds, and the first third was about Job and God and Satan. Job gets introduced, and God and Satan talk. And then we had the three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. But now we're going to move into the last third, right, the last trimester, if you will, of this book. And it's going to be Job, Elihu, and God. And the last time we heard from Job, there was this great illustration that comes right from the word that stuck in my mind all week. And it was this idea that people are mining the depths, dangling from ropes. And the way that Job illustrates this is he's like, there's no birds in the air, there's no feet have trod, and there's men just swinging in these dark caverns. And he means inside, right? There's these deep caverns that are being looked into. And Job, I think, is actually in this moment dangling over this chasm, and he doesn't know what to make of it. And the very last thing that we heard him seeking out was this, asking this question, where does wisdom come from? Where does wisdom come from? And so with that, we're going to pick it up right where he left off with that question. In in, uh, Job 29, so you can turn there if you would like to. Job 29, we're going to cover 29 through 31 this morning. Job continues his discourse. How I long for the months gone by, for the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through the darkness. Oh, for the days when I was in my prime, when God's intimate friendship blessed my house, when the Almighty was still with me and my children were around me, when my path was drenched with cream and the rock poured out for me streams of olive oil. And I'm going to stop there. This is Job introducing a next uh, part of his conversation. And I told you already that Job has been um, wrestling with God and talking to it. He lamented and he was talking to his friends. But what we're going to realize is that Job continues looking for wisdom. He begins to decompress some things in his life. As a final setup to this, I want you to remember that other than Job's friends saying, hey, Job, this is what you should think and this is what you should do and this is how you should act. Other than that, the last time Job lamented of his own volition was whenever he said, I wish I had never been born. I wish I'd never been conceived. 
And, and if you're like me, you know that birth and conception are things we celebrate in this life. You know, we saw those kids come up here this morning and watch the baptism, right? Those are precious children of God. And so Job had lost all bearing, we talked about that, and lamented the day of his birth and the day of his conception as if nothing good had ever happened to him before. And I believe what happens now is that Job begins to remember God's favor. He begins to remember the favor of God. It, it, the word here, he says he continues his discourse. It means he continues his own story, the parable, listen, the poetry of his life. And after this long kind of dry spell, and this has been a long period of suffering for Job. I hope you don't read the book of Job and think, oh, that was like a few bad days. Like it was a long season of suffering for Job. We don't know how long it's not counted out for us, but it's a long period of time that Job's been suffering and lamenting and wasting away in this life. And in the middle of that, and it's important to recognize it, he begins to remember God's favor. Do you see it right there at the beginning? Oh, how I long for the months gone by, the days of yore, right? The, the good old days, Job says. I want the good old days. What are the good old days for Job? When God watched over my life, listen, when his lamp shone upon my head and his light, I walked through the darkness. Oh, for the days when I was in my prime, when God's intimate friendship blessed my household, when the Almighty was still with me. See, he remembers something in his life that was worth having. And I'm going to lean on that a little harder because that's why it was so shocking that Job said, I wish I had never been born. I wish I would never been conceived. I wish my parents had never had me. And now he says, actually, I really missed the time that I knew God intimately. You know what's funny? I think that many of us in our lives, we long for that again. Do you remember that? When you knew God's care, and some of you go like, dude, I don't remember that. Like, my life's been hard the whole time. Go, at some point, as children, at some point, we remember there's something. Here's how I know. Because the same people who say my life's been terrible will say my life ain't right. Where does that come from? The sense that it's not right. It's a remembering that it's not how it's supposed to be. And Job begins to enumerate God's favor. It looks like intimate friendship with God. When I knew God and I could pray to God and God answered my prayers, I long for those days again when the Almighty was with me. And then here's the only time in chapter 29, verse 5, that I see Job mention his loss, which I said every time his friends said, you know, your kids are cursed because of your sin. And like, oof, right? In verse 5, he says this, and when my children still surrounded me. Now listen, I don't think that we only get that one thing from Job because he doesn't miss his children. I think it's his greatest experiential loss. We talked about how he went through all the things he lost. He lost his business. He lost his property. He lost everything else. But the last thing he lost was his kids. It's like you could probably take all those other things, but your kids, right? And I was talking to a friend of mine this week about family difficulty. And there's something about like when you have children, they live outside of you. And, you, and, you, and Job was praying and offering sacrifice for his kids, but he couldn't, he, he doesn't have the ability to protect them. He has to trust God with his kids somehow. And that's one of the things I think that Job's going to learn in this whole experience is that he can trust God and God's righteousness, even with his children. But they live outside in a way that is so painful that if the enemy were to attack anywhere, it might very well be your kids. 
right? If the enemy, that's what he said, right? Let me, let me strike Job, and he strikes Job's kids, because that's striking Job. And Job said, oh, how I long for the day that my kids surrounded me, the children that I had. He misses it. Whenever the rock poured out for me, streams of olive oil, that's just blessing after blessing after blessing. He knew no hardship. He, he just had God's favor all the time. Verse 7, when I went to the gates of the city and they took, I took my seat at the public square, when the young men saw me and stepped aside and the old men would stand up in my presence, when the chief men refrained from speaking and covered their mouths with their hands, the voices of the nobles were hushed and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouth. Whoever heard me spoke well of me and those who saw me commended me because I rescued the poor who cried out for help, the fatherless who had none to assist him. And so now Job's like, I miss the respect I used to have. He's, in, he's, he's, he's remembering God's favor. I used to be respected. Why? Because of my obedience to God's word. When he says there, I'm caring for the widow and the orphans, that's not a, a random act. He's being obedient to God in those things. Verse 13, the man who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. She had lost. He helped her. I put on the righteousness as my clothing and justice as my robe and my hat. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. That means I actually helped people in their life. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked, and I snatched the victims from their teeth. And, and when I first read that and we were prepping this, I was like, I, 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 me, me, me. Job, what's your problem, man? And I first thought Job was being very selfish here in his own losses. But what he's doing is remembering all the opportunities that he had to serve and be faithful to God. The, uh, the times that God had used him and he missed it in his own life. And a few more here on verse 18. I thought I will die in my own house. My days as numerous as the grains of sand. He had no doubt he was going to die without any hardship. Job. 19, my roots will reach all the way out to the water and my dew will be all night on my branches. My glory will remain fresh in me and my bow will ever be new in my hand, right? So everything he wants, he's gonna get. Men listen to me expectantly, waiting in silence for my counsel. After I had spoken, they spoke no more. My words fell gently on their ears. And this might be one of those problems he had with his friends, right? Because he says something, his friends say something, he says something, and that's usually it, but it ain't it. His friends say something back to him, right? So, and, and his words, he believes, were gentle. They waited for me as for showers, and they drank in my words like the spring rain. When I smiled at them, they scarcely believed it. The light of my face was precious to them. I chose the way for them and sat as their chief. That almost means king. I dwelt as a king among his troops. I was like one who comforts mourners. Don't miss the connection. His friends came to comfort him and soothe him in his suffering. So he's like, I've done all these things and I miss all those things. He misses God's favor, his children, of course, the respect he got and the reputation in the community, his purposeful service when he was able to help people. Do you ever think about the fact that you are able to help someone is a blessing from God that you can help? Like the thing that Ryan was talking about, do you ever think about that's a gift of God that you have the ability to not just do it, but to see it and then to speak it? I love that he says, I helped the lame. I was eyes to the blind. You could think, oh, he was eyes to the blind. But you know, you ever seen someone needs help getting through a room? An elderly person needs help getting to their feet? 
That's a blessing of God to be able to serve others in that way. And Job misses it because now he feels like he can do none of those things. He's lost all reputation, all ability to be of service, of help to others. He's lost all confidence. He says, I'm sure I was going to live to the very end of my days, but I'm not so sure anymore. And he's lost all of his clout in the community. What's Job doing? And I said the word here, God, uh, Job remembers God. He's remembering. I know, I'm a word nerd. But members, you know, it says in the New Testament, we are all members of one body, right? Just like the head is not detached from the feet, just like the hand is not detached from the arm, we are all connected in the kingdom of God. And Paul makes a big case to this, the churches that are in disagreement about everything. He's like, listen, y'all, you belong together and you have a part to serve in this. What does that have to do with Job? Because Job has been dissected. His life has been torn apart. And, and after all the lamenting and all the hurt and all the hopelessness and all despair, which is painful to listen to, in that quiet time before he ends his words, he begins to say, I remember those days. He puts that hand back on. I used to bless people. I used to be of service. I used to have kids. I used to do these things. Why is this important? I think it's important that we would all spend some time remembering, especially if we have a tendency to say things like, it's, um, it's all over. It, it'll never be better. Life is broken beyond repair. And listen to me this morning. I know those are hard things to say and to hear and to believe, but the truth is that in the remembering, we begin to reconstitute God's purpose for our life. We begin to rearticulate our story and say, well, I thought beforehand that was my story, but now my story is this other story, and it's good. It's God's good purpose, God's good plan. I don't claim that that journey is easy at all, and it's not easy for Job. But if we aren't willing to remember, then we're doomed to stay where we are. This was a vast improvement for where he had been before, where he just lamented his entire existence. I mean, that was baffling to me. A man as blessed as Job could say, I never had anything good happen. You're like, what are you talking about? But he experienced it. Here's my question. Have you ever had a hard time remembering the good old days. Like, have you ever gotten to a place in your life, you know, where you can't remember the good old days? Life's gotten so hard, so complicated that you're just struggling to hang on, let alone think about well, how blessed you are to be here right now. For me, this comes up in parenting teenagers. I love my teenagers. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> You know what God's favor is? And listen, if you don't have kids and grandkids, God's not, it's, he's blessing you. So it's not only this, but then you have a grandbaby and you're like, oh, they used to be so sweet. <laughs> Which is not true. They're kind of terrorists, but you know, you remember again. It wasn't always this way. I think it's like the hump in the middle of the journey where God's like, don't give up yet. It's going to be okay. Because we're all growing and changing. That's the truth. Life is never the same. And, and if, we're, we're, if it did stay the same, it would be broken in some way. As a matter of fact, I've posited this issue before at Family Bible Church, but the truth is I believe that these are the good old days. We spend time lamenting the good old days, but these are the good old days. Because there will come a day where you will say, I wish it were as those days were. That's how life seems to work. So picking up then in... Chapter 30, verse 1, Job goes on. But now they mock me, men younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to put with my sheepdogs. 
Of what use was the strength of their hands to me? Since their vigor had gone from them, haggard from want and hunger, they roamed in the parched land in desolate wastelands at night. In the brush, they gathered salt herbs and their food was the root of the broom tree. And so now Job begins to uh, enumerate his loss. He says, now I'm being mocked. And so he's kind of remembered the past, and now he starts to actually complain about the present in a different way. I cannot believe that these same ones I wouldn't have watched my dogs are now making fun of me. And he kind of describes them there. Verse 5, they were banished from their fellow men. They shouted as if they were thieves. They were forced to live in the dry stream beds, among the rocks, and in the holes in the ground. They brayed among the bushes, and they huddled in the undergrowth, a base and nameless brood. They were driven out of the land. So he's like, and those people are making fun of me now. I've I've lost, that's a loss I've experienced. And now their sons, those people's sons, mock me in song. I just want to sit on that for a minute. Like, it's not just they're saying, you know, neener, neener, like, but they're like making up songs about Job's brokenness. Like they're singing songs about his suffering. And they're, it says, mocking him in song. I have become a byword among them. They detest me and they keep their distance from me. They don't hesitate to spit in my face. Now that God has unstrung my bow and afflicted me, they throw off all restraint in my presence. On my right hand, the tribe attacks. They lay snares for my feet. They build their siege ramps against me. They break up my road. They succeed in destroying me without anyone's help, anyone's helping them. They advance as though a gaping, through a gaping breach. Amid the ruins, they come rolling in. This is like the kind of siege mentality, right? He's just being overrun by these kids of the people that he was not, didn't think were worthy of his time before. Terrors overwhelm me. My dignity is driven away by the wind. My safety is vanishing like a cloud. You know, actually, this makes me think of, you ever, um, gr- when you were growing up, did you ever have that one house in your neighborhood, or maybe it was down the street a ways that was super creepy? Do you have one of those? And then you make up a story about that house, and our story was always, a witch lives there. <laughs> and you go, and then you would dare somebody, go up and knock on the door, you know? Have you ever driven by a house that's in shambles, and you think, man, why don't they clean that place up? That's terrible. Why don't they mow that grass? Why don't they fix those shutters? You throw rocks at the window, get out of my yard. Or worse yet, no response comes. You go in the house and it's just stacked. It's just complete disarray. It's destroyed. You know, as a kid, it's funny to have that. Oh, it's a witch, it's a witch. You know, come on. You know, you get that. Have you ever talked to somebody who's living in that house? Who's been widowed? Who's lost children? who's a widower, listen, who had a plan and had a dream, and now it's just all gone to crap. And they just pile it up and pile it up to the point that everyone goes, can't they mow their grass? That's his loss. He's a byword. He's mocked. He's, listen, in 15, terrified by these children. It's like his walls are breached and they come in waves and just make fun of him. And he has no safety anymore. You see, the truth is that he's feeling powerless now. He's feeling hopeless now. I love that he says, they've broken up my road. It means I had a path paved and it's completely destroyed. And he thinks he's beyond help. 
often uh, we talk about people who've gone through hard things, and uh, I, one of the privileges I get is to walk with them through that season of life. I try to. And many times people say, I can't forgive because I'm not going to forget. You ever heard that? Well, just forgive and forget, right? I don't think that forgiveness requires forgetting, actually. I think forgiveness requires remembering, enumerating, counting it out. Job's going through his life, and he's like, there's nothing. All these bad things are happening. Grieving is not forgetting, but remembering what you've lost, confessing and being honest. Listen to me, first with yourself, which is the hardest thing. I can't bear to acknowledge all that I've lost here and articulating those things. I recently heard someone saying, if you were lost in the woods and you were in a deep fog, what's your best strategy for surviving? You know you're in a mountainous area, it's treacherous, you can see only a few feet around you. What's your best strategy for surviving? Take careful steps, grab things around you. Physically, your best step is to stop until the fog clears because you don't know what's coming next. To enumerate where you are in life, to find your location on the map with some kind of clarity so that you know the next step won't be your last. To admit where you are right now on this precipice, on this edge, and you don't know where to go. Job says, I am terrified. I wonder in your life, if you're struggling, can you admit what you've lost like Job does? Can you do the work of enumerating those things? And then we're going to pick up in verse 16. Here's Job's final plea. And now my life ebbs away from me. Days of suffering grip me. Night pierces my bones. My gnawing pains never rest. In his great power, God becomes like clothing to me. And you would think that's a good thing, right? God's his clothing. Listen to the next verse. He binds me about the neck like a garment, and he throws me down into the mud. I am reduced to dust and ashes. This is like, a, you know, I did a little uh, judo in the day, and they grab your gi, and they throw you by your gi. Like, it's wrapped around your neck, and they can just toss you on the ground. That's his experience. God is wrestling and holding me down, my face in the mud. So in this case, being dressed by God, it's like, this is a hard thing. He's in control of my life. I'm being reduced to ashes and dust. Verse 20, I cry out to you, O God, but you don't answer me. I stand up, but you merely stare at me. You turn on me ruthlessly. With the might of your hand, you attack me. You snatch me up and drive me before the wind. You toss me about like a storm. I know you will bring me down to death, to the place appointed for all those who are living. Surely no one lays a hand on a broken man when he cries out for help in distress. Have I not wept for those in trouble? Has not my soul grieved for the poor? Yet when I hoped for good, evil came. And when I looked for light, then came darkness. Listen to 27. This is where it gets so hard. The churning inside me never stops. My days of suffering continually confront me. I go about blackened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry out for help. I have become a brother of jackals, a companion of owls. My skin grows black and peels. My body burns with fever. My harp is tuned to mourning, and my flute only knows the sound of wailing. He's like, this is bad, and I'm in a bad way. 
Have you ever had an opposite day? I hear opposite day when he says in 26, I looked for good, yet evil came. I looked for light, yet only darkness came. Have you had those? Have you had the experience where you're, you're you know, you've always asked God and, and then the opposite, the answers come opposite so much that someone says, you should pray about it. You're like, I don't think I want to pray about it. Because it's like opposite day around here. You want this, you get that. Right? Have you had that? I remember I had that in my life where a point where someone came to me and said, pray for me. I said, I don't think you want me to pray for you right now because it's opposite day. <sighs> See, the truth is this, that Job fears his future. He fears he has no future. He fears, he said, I'm terrified, not that I'm going through these things, but that these things are going to be how it is forever. He's hurting and he's ho hoping but hopeless. Listen, the churning inside never stops, he says. I'm so afraid of what's coming. Then he begins to enumerate his life so far, what he has done. I was, uh, I was out having a fun ride just recently. I was going down Poplar Street here in Highland, and I went through a section, and we rode all around or whatever, you know, did a little country ride in the Harleys, and came back, and I said, I want to go back to that real quick and take a picture, and I want to share with, I think this is pretty interesting, right? This is southbound on Poplar, and you see that sign? It says, Hill Blocks View. You know where it's at, right? You go down, yeah, uh, past the, what is that on the right side, that really, uh, Willow Creek. Go to Willow Creek, and you come up the hill, all the housing in the 20th streets and on beyond. And right before you get over the rise, and there's a whole bunch of stuff over there. There's a church on the left. There's housing on the right. There's a bunch of fields out that way. But there's a sign that warns you that the hill blocks your view. Why is it there? So you don't run into somebody, right? You might come over and be a bicyclist. There might be an old person crossing the road. There's an, a, a church on the right side as well, right? There's a bunch of life on the other side of this hill. But right now, you can't see it. And so there's a sign that says, look out. There's life ahead. Be careful. Slow down. Watch what's coming. You see, Job is in the pit of the valley. We sang that song this morning. Though I walk through the valley of darkness, I'll have no fear. Why? Because there is life coming. There's something we can't see right now. And I believe when Job is fearing his future, he's, he's looking at a view like that. He's like, I can't see any way this is going to get better right now. He begins to... Uh, face his fears, and confess his situation. Job then says this, 31, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. For what is man's lot from God, uh, his heritage from the Almighty on high? Is it not the ruin for the wicked, disaster for those who do wrong? Does he not see my ways and count my every step? If I have walked in falsehood or my foot has hurried after deceit, let God weigh me in honest scales. So Job's like, I've been living righteously, and he will know that I am blameless. In my steps, in my, if my steps have turned uh, from this path, if my heart has been led by my eyes, if my hands have defiled, then may others eat what I have sown, and may my crops be uprooted. He's like, I've lived righteously, 
as best I can. I've done my best. If my heart has been enticed by a woman or if I've lurked at my neighbor's door, he's saying, I've not been coveted, coveted, I've not coveted my neighbor's stuff or my neighbor's spouse, then may my wife grind another man's grain and may other men sleep with her. He's saying like, if I've done it, let it be done to me. For what good would, for, for that would have been shameful, a sin to be judged. It is a fire that burns to destruction. It would have been uprooted from my harvest. If I have denied justice to my manservants and maidservants when they were, had a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? So he's like, I've been fair to everyone, those who are serving under me. What will I answer when called to account? Did not he who made me in the womb also make them? There it is. Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? Job's like, we, I'm no better than they are, and I've tried to treat them like that. He's fair, just. 16, if I have denied the desires of the poor or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I have kept my bread to myself and not shared it with the fatherless, but from my youth I have reared him as I would my own child, and from my birth I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing or a needy man without garment and his heart did not bless me for warming him with the fleece from my sheep, if I have not raised, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing that I have influence in court, then let my arm fall from his shoulder, then let it be broken off at the joint. So he's like, I've been generous in my life. And then he says this. Why? Because I dreaded destruction from God for fear of God's splendor. I would never do such things. So he's seeking God's glory in his life. He goes on. If I have put my trust in gold or set of pure gold, you are my security. If I have rejoiced over my great wealth, the fortune of my hands have gained. If I have guarded the sun and its radiance or the moon moving in its splendor so that my heart was secretly enticed and my hand offered them a kiss of homage, then also these would be sins to be judged. I would have been unfaithful to God on high. He's like, I've only worshiped God in my life. Never my circumstance, never my stuff. If I had rejoiced with my enemies' misfortunes, if I had gloated over them in trouble, when trouble came upon them, if I had not allowed my mouth to sin, if I had not allowed my mouth to sin by invoking a curse against his life, if the men of my household never said, who is this, who has not filled his, had his fill of Job's meat, but no stranger had to spend a night in the street, for my door was always open to the traveler, if I have concealed my sin as men do by hiding my guilt in my heart, because I so feared the crowd around me and I so dreaded the contempt of the clans that I kept silent and would not go aside. He's like, I've been open my whole life about this stuff. I've been generous. He's like, I've not even gloated over my enemies' sufferings. And then the last thing he says here is, um, I've not even concealed my sin. That's pretty wild. I've always admitted honestly where I stand, my own failures. You remember Job made sacrifices for his kids lest they curse God in their hearts. And then he's gonna close it out here. And he says this, 35, oh, that I had someone to hear my lament. I now sign my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser bring his indictment in writing. Surely I will wear it on my shoulder. I will put it on like a crown. I will give him an account of every step in my life. Like a prince, I would approach him. And this is what he does. He's like, Job. 
right? You can just hear him running out of stuff. He's like, I've, I've done it, I've said it, I've done all this stuff, and he's like, I, I want someone to hear my complaint that God would indict me, and he signs his name. Who am I? I am Job. Oof, listen. Job hated. Job, the one who's been afflicted. He signs his testimony. Then in 38, he says this, if my land were to cry out against me and all its furrows were wet with tears, if I have devoured its yield without payment to, or broken the spirit of its tenants, then let the briars come up instead of wheat and the weeds instead of barley. And it says this, the, jo the words of Job are ended. The very last thing he says, he signs it, he says, and may the land testify against me. We talked about how the blood cried out from the soil when injustice is done. And Job standing in that same soil says, let this earth testify against me if these things are not so. And he signs off. Can't say anymore. The words of Job are ended. What does your future look like right now? What's over the hill? Listen, what's in the rearview mirror? that you may be lost and you think is lost for good. Have you yourself ever gotten to where Job is where you run out of words? Out of words? And here's the final question then. Do you need to hear from God yourself? Not Job, you, right? Not Job, me. Do, do we sit and long for that moment of a creator who know, who's known us since our inception and who knows our future, and we'll, we need to speak. This is where Job stops. This is where Job ends his words. I don't know if you've had that experience or if you're having it now. I want to encourage you to wait because the story is not over. And if you've not been here, I would encourage you to come back. We're going to have next Sunday, Father's Day, Elihu, and then the final Sunday, God's going to speak. And it's worth knowing. And if you don't come back, read the story. Read it from here on out when God finally speaks. Pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for the truth that you un, 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 reveal, that you uh, disclose to us through your word. I thank you so much, Father, this morning that even as we've walked through this hard thing with Job, we've seen ourselves this kind of revelation of acknowledging the things we've lost, of taking accountability for the things we've done, of, of knowing the life and who we are. And Father, more than anything else, I praise you that you, your word says again and again that you knit us together in our mother's womb, that there's no accident in whose kids we are and whose parents we are, and that all of us here in this room are here for your purpose. There's something in our lives that is your good idea. Father, many of us may be in a spot right now where we are just desperate for you, or maybe we don't, we just can't go back and face that stuff. I pray that by your Spirit's leading, if it is your will, you would lead us in that journey, that we would have the courage of Job to acknowledge our brokenness and our sin, to, to confess our real state, and then to long for something better that you have planned for us. Oh God, don't leave us at the bottom of the unseen hill. Show us what's coming. Lead us to the land you've promised to us. We, we trust you will do this because of the gospel of Jesus Christ that makes all things new, including us. We thank you for the future.
that we have in him. Would you bless us, lead us into it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.